I just God is doing something and is about to do some wonderful things. Father, we thank you again for this precious time of worship and of honoring you and of praising your love for us and opening our hearts to be thankful for the love that you've lavished upon us and to open our hearts to receive more of that love. And if we ever wonder how much you love us, all we have to do is look at that cross and the price you were willing to pay for us while we were still your enemies. So we thank you that for that. We thank you, Father, for this new life, this young life that we've celebrated today and we've committed into your hands, into your life, into your trust, into you and for this young family and for all of our young families. We thank you, Father, this so much. We thank you for the ministry that's going off in other parts of the building right now to our young, young people, to our teenagers, to our young adults, to all that is going on. We even have small groups that are ministering, being ministered to right now. So we pray for your grace in every one of those venues. And now as a congregation, we turn to your word. We trust the spirit of the living God to speak to us. For you are a God who speaks. You are a God who communicates. And you are a father who, because you love us, you will speak into our lives. And today you will speak what we needed by every person that's here. Some may need encouragement. Some may need direction. Some may need, many of us may need correction. We need to be infused with the power of your spirit. And so we come this morning, Father, and just open our hearts to you to allow your spirit to speak to us. We set aside our prejudices. We set aside whatever we may have gone through to get here, and we focus our attention on you and upon your word. I know in my heart there are things that you want to show us this morning. And so as always, all I can do is trust in the anointing that's upon your word and the precious Holy Spirit to take what you put in my heart and to deposit it into the hearts of everyone that's here and that is watching and listening online. And for these things we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Uh, I'm told that we've had some problems um, with posting the notes. Those of you who follow the notes, you can get them on our website and you can get them on, our, um, on the app, the Faith Christian Center app. Uh, when I used to preach, I didn't use notes because I, I think in outlines. I could do it out of my head. And I've gone the opposite of what many pastors do. They start with detailed notes and as they get more experienced, they use fewer notes. I've gone the other way because I want you to see my notes. I want you to have them available if you want to use them. For, some people have used them for Bible studies. They're, they're yours to use. And as today, I've got a, a long quote. We post those in those so you can take the quote. But there's a technical problem this morning which we're working to get around. So just if you like, if you use the notes, don't give up. Chiefs keep going back and they will, they will get posted. The second preliminary I want to make, mention, I mentioned it last Sunday, is we are living in extraordinary times. It does not take much spiritual discernment to realize the extraordinariness of the times we're living in. And there's so many distractions out there for Christians to distract us from what's really important for what God has for us and what God has called us to do. And our focus and our purpose here in everything we do, and you're going to see, if you haven't seen already, there's a consistent theme through the messages that you're hearing, not just mine. Pastor Michael on Wednesday night did a great job. Pastor Chris several weeks ago. God is preparing us for something. My view is that we are in the beginning of the last days, if we're not in them. That this may well be the beginning of sorrows that Jesus talks about. 
And so we need to be prepared. And part of what we want to do, a major part of what we want to do here is to prepare all of us. To prepare all of us for, so that whatever's coming, we can be strong through this because God has ordained for us to be strong. You've heard me say over and over again that God did not call His church to survive. He called us to overcome. Jesus makes a promise to each, each church in the book of Revelation to Him who overcomes, not to Him who survives, not to Him who gives in. So that means there's something we're going to have to overcome and we need to follow what Jesus says and the, trust the Holy Spirit to prepare us. He will prepare us. One of the last parables Jesus gave was the parable of the ten virgins, of the ones that were ready and prepared and those that weren't prepared. And we're getting close to that day when that moment comes, when what's called the day of the Lord comes, and those who are ready will enter in. And the difference was those who had their lamps filled with the oil. And the oil represents the Holy Spirit. And those virgins that wasted their time being distracted by other things, they hadn't filled their lamp. And when the time came, they didn't have the light that was going to be needed to come into the wedding feast. So they were left out. And I'm not trying to scare anybody, but this is a serious time we're living in. So I say that by way of saying again what I've said the last several weeks. This is not a kindergarten class. If you're here to be made to feel good about where you are, you're in the wrong place. And wherever you go is going to be the wrong place. Because God loves us so much. He wants to prepare us and get us ready. And if we'll trust Him and just be open, He's well able to do this. Have I got you excited for the message yet today? <laughs> I just wanted to say that because, uh, you know, pastors love to, just, love to just give things that people are going to jump up and run around and shout. But this is not a time to do that. This is a time to grow up. And what I'm preaching to you, God's preaching to me. What I'm going to talk about this morning, I'm not there yet, but I know with all my heart this is what God is after in me. And because I know what he's like, if he's going to be after it in me, he's after it in you also. So, with that way of introduction, <laughs> we're going to pick up with where we left off last week. I was having coffee with one of the elders this morning, this week, and I made a reference at the end of the message last week. Well, next week, I'm going to minister on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he said to me, it sounded like where the message ended up, but you weren't quite ready to do that yet. And I began to think about that. Now, you know, you know, he's right. So I began to pray some more about that. So it looks that we're going to lead up to that again because there's preparation that needs to... So let's lead into this. What we've been talking about is based out of a prophecy that God gave to Ezekiel uh, in, uh, in Ezekiel 47. And in that chapter, God gives him a vision... Uh, he's been giving him a vision starting in chapter 40, I think it is, of, of, the, of the, what the new temple is going to be like. And he did this at a time when, when Judah, the southern nation of, Israel, of, of, of the Jews, had been taken into captivity. So they'd left, they'd been taken out of their homeland, they'd seen their temple burned, and they had lost hope what's going to happen to us. And God sent them prophets, one of which was Ezekiel, and one of his purposes was to give them a hope that there was a future, that there was an end to this, and there was something bright that was coming, and it was a restoration of the temple. And then in chapter 43, we looked at last week, God 
God's prophesying, giving a vision that his physical presence will dwell in that temple. In the tabernacle, in the wilderness, his presence dwelt in the innermost room where nobody else could get to except the high priest on the Day of Atonement. But God's promise is, I want to dwell among my people. But then we saw last week that before he prophesied, before he, in the vision he could do that, he had to cleanse the temple. He had to deal with the, with the worldliness in the priests, get them out actually. He had to deal with the profaneness that was on their mouth. He had to deal with issues in their life because he's a holy God. I said he's a holy God. He's a holy God. He's a holy God. And he can only dwell among holy people. Well, what are we going to do? That's why he sent Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places just as He chose us in, in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him. So we talked about that last week and we're going to talk a little bit more about this today and then we're going to talk about how, how do we do that. So we, show, we saw that this vision, we saw that Jesus prophesied that there would come a time when rivers of living water would flow out of his believers, out of his church, out of your innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. And then he was very clear about that. That was going to be the Holy Spirit, but he'd not yet come because I've not yet been glorified. Well, he's been glorified now. We saw that um, it speaks of the, of the power of a revival. This river was a river of life, that it flowed out of the temple. It flowed actually from the altar out of the temple, and wherever it went, it healed, it restored, it brought life. And the river that he's talking about there is prophesying for an outpouring of the Spirit of God that will bring life into this dead world. The last great harvest. We talked also, and James talks about that, that, there'll be, that, that, that there's an early rain and a latter rain. And rain represented what was needed to the, the farmers in that day, the agrarian culture that they were. They needed an early outpouring of rain, kind of like we need today, to begin to, to germinate the seeds that had been planted in the early, the early harvest. And that, was repre- that represented the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, where this outpouring of the Spirit birthed the church. But James talks about a latter harvest. And that latter harvest speaks of the great final, the great latter rain, which speaks of the latter harvest. And I believe that's where we are today. We're at the threshold of that. And so that's why this is so, so important. In Acts chapter 2, we see that first outpouring and what it was like. And now we're preparing for the second. Last week, we had a message called, Where's the Beef? And it was talking about, where's the power of God in the church today? The power of God were situations even in this room right now where there are broken relationships. There are people here undoubtedly that are bound up by things. It may be drugs. It may be alcohol. It may be something like tobacco. It may be painkillers. Whatever it is, something's binding so many people up. So many Christians' lives are falling apart and then under the pressure that we're under today, it's even worse and it's even harder. So my question is, where's the power of God that delivered lives back then and turned them around? And it's happened at other times, not just back in the book of Acts. There have been great outpourings of the Spirit. And there are some signs of that today. There's churches I've listened to and read about where people are being just supernaturally delivered from things. Marriages are being supernaturally turned around. Children are supernaturally coming home. 
things that Satan's worked so hard to destroy are getting turned around as the power of God's life begins to flow into that situation. Do you have any idea how powerful God is? No, we don't. (laughs) It's nothing personal. We don't because that's how little our faith is. The measure of what we know God can do and believe God can do is what we do in an emergency. Where do you turn in an emergency? Do we get on our knees and call out to God and believe He's actually going to hear us? Or do we go onto social media? I've got to move on. <laughs> I will never get there if I don't move on. So where's the power? Where's the power today? And what we ended up talking about is just as God prepared them by having to cleanse the temple, perhaps our temple, this temple, this temple, this temple, needs cleansing. Cleansing from what? Worldliness. Cleansing from the things that distract us. There's so many distractions today that can distract us, and every one of them is designed. Everything that comes into your life that's not come from God is intended to distract you from your pure devotion to Christ. Everything, even good things. So we need discernment. I haven't even got started yet. <laughs> we saw that the source of power in Jesus in the early church was their total consecration to God's will. And we saw that our wills are really not submitted to God. And we used the example of the hose. Remember the video we showed of the hose? We showed I was out there trying to water the grass that desperately needed grass. The problem was I had the hose, I had a, I had a, I had a, um, a, a sprayer, but the hose was not connected to the water source. And so we're trying to minister God's power, but we're not connected, we're not submitted under that, under that power. So today we're going to pick up and talk about how does that happen. The problem is this. In order to surrender, is to surrender, to surrender, the decision to surrender is controlled by our will. You will not surrender something you're not willing to surrender. The problem is, it's our will that we need to surrender, and our will doesn't want to surrender, so it will do everything it can to imitate surrender and not surrender. That makes sense to you? Well, we're going to go through this and describe it to you a little bit. I had a, when I was a lawyer, one of the, one of the practices that we had was we, we did these large chapter 11 reorganizations. And we have a client come in and they would say, this is the problem, we're losing business, you know, we've got market share, we've got whatever, wherever it is. And my senior partner and I would sit there with them and while they're telling us this problem, we're looking for the answer because the reorganization has to find out what the problem is and change it. And we knew that nine out of ten times what had to change was the people across the table who were our clients because what was wrong with the company came through them. So the problem is going to be to convince them who brought this case to us that the first thing that has to go is you (laughs) who brought the case to us in order for this to successfully reorganize. So the problem is in order for us to submit what has to surrender is the one part of you that doesn't want to surrender and the one part of me that doesn't want to surrender my will. And praying about this one time, the Lord gave me this example. He said, Jesus said, you know, Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ. 
Therefore, it's no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. And it dawned on me, you can't nail yourself to a cross. You can't pound the nails. If I'm going to be crucified with Christ, I can't nail myself to that cross. I can't put myself to death. Somebody stronger than I has to do it. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Very exciting. And here's the root of the problem. The root of the problem is that we really do not understand how God sees sin. I'm going to read a quote to you, and hopefully when they get this posted again, this is a long quote, so pay attention, that you'll see this quote. But I cannot say it any better. This is from a little book I have in my Bible software, uh, written by a gentleman in the 40s, written about Martin Luther's, who was the father of the Great Reformation, Martin Luther's revelation that God gave him of the righteousness that we have in Christ by faith. So listen carefully to this. Sins that are interpreted as coming from a person are really sins of action and constitute a knowledge of sin in terms of our thoughts, our words, and our deeds. Ultimately, when people conceive of sin in this way, what they're really considering is the fruits of sin, which are merely symptoms of the true sin that's concealed beneath them. With such an understanding of sin, one is misled to consider all matter of sins without recognizing the true nature of the sickness. Furthermore, if one succeeds in repressing the symptoms, the sickness will attack from the inside. Any righteousness shown in this manner is really hypocrisy. It is in his natural despair which is the last analysis is a false one, because the person is despairing really only of the appearance of what he is. The person will not look at himself, but always will try to break free from the mistakes and weaknesses that tarnish the picture of the perfect human being which he aspires to be. So he will try to cast off his sins and faults, but will remain the same even in the attempt." However, casting off one's sins is quite impossible. A person must... Listen carefully to this. This is sound hard, but listen carefully. A person must first be destroyed because he is the person who holds on to his own ideal of what is good, true, just, and godly. Such a person believes he needs to be directed to God only because of his incomplete and weak nature as if the goal of perfection is ultimately to not need God. He thinks that grace is only a stage, some kinds of means of his holy power because they are simply not, he's simply not strong enough or perfect enough to do it on his own. If that's the case, then God would be merely a means to someone achieving their own self-perfection. This is exactly the kind of person who uses God but really does not believe or have faith in him. This type of person would be happiest if he could do it alone without God since even his own mistakes irritate him because they show him that he's not God and that he's actually God's enemy and opponent. God's judgment stands firmly against this person. He must be destroyed. First time I read that, it shocked me. But what he's talking about is self. The very root of all sin is self. And every other hyphenated self word self-protection, self-provision, self-righteousness. 
self-promotion. In the garden, Satan came to tempt them to take their own life into their own hands as, and basically be their own God. He just didn't tell them that's what they were doing. And that's the temptation that he offers to us every day is to take our own life, our own sense of what's right and wrong, our, the project of making me a better Christian into my own hands. And that writer saying, even if you get very good at that, what you're really doing is you're feeding the ego of the self that's underneath it. And this is the very root, and this is what God has to destroy. Every confidence that you can have in yourself apart from Christ. Jesus himself said to his disciples, apart from me, you can't do very well. Oh, that's not what he said? Oh, he didn't? He said, apart from me, you'll get close, but you won't quite get there. No, he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And these were men he had trained himself. And the struggle we have is we want Christ and we want God and we want the Holy Spirit as a resource to help us get to where we think we can't get, want to get. And the sign of it is when we're disappointed in ourselves. I've quoted to you before, Oswald Chambers says, discouragement is nothing more than disenchanted self-love. To think about it. When I'm discouraged, who am I discouraged about? Me. I didn't do very well today. I didn't measure up today. That's the part of me that still has to die. Remember the old James Bond movie? Is it Goldfinger? You know, James Bond's been captured. He's on this table and there's a saw coming at him and he turns to Goldfinger, what do you want me to do? You're supposed to die. <laughs> it's like, God, what am I supposed to Die. Well, let's look at some examples. I've got to do this fairly quickly. We may not get through all this today. Isaiah chapter 6. We talked about, some of these we talked about before. This is, this is God preparing the greatest of his prophets of the Old Testament to speak for a holy God. And Isaiah was a holy man by the world's understanding of him. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne. This was a vision he had. High and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Verse 2. And above it stood seraphim, and each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. I can't imagine what that looked like. And he cried to one another, saying, Look what he's saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door, this is in heaven, were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. That's just the angel's voice. And the house was filled with smoke. That's the tangible presence of God. And my reaction was, woe is me for I am undone. And he was a holy man by our standards. But when he saw the holy God, he saw who he was apart from God. I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Why? For my eyes have seen the King, the Holy 
God of Israel, the Lord of hosts. Keep going. Then one of the seraphim flew at me, having in his hand a live coal, which he'd taken from the tongs of the altar. I don't have time to get into that. That comes from back in the the, uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. And with this he touched my mouth and said, This has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away from you. Your sin is purged. Keep going. I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Whom shall I go, go, go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. You can stop there. So what's happening here? God, in order to send him out to speak directly for a holy God, had to cleanse his lips. And the way God did it was showing him God's own holiness. And when he saw God's holiness, he realized in spite of how good he was compared to other people, He was unholy compared to God. In this room right now, some of you think it's cold, some of you think it's warm, and it's just one temperature. Because you're comparing what this temperature in the room is to the temperature of your body. And if it feels colder than the temperature of your body, you feel cold. If it's the other way around, you feel the other way around. But there is an absolute cold which is 600 and some degrees below zero, where there is no heat in the room at all. So you and I judge what's hot and cold by ourselves. And we judge what's holy and unholy by ourselves. God judged what is holy and holy by Him, which is absolute holiness. And so His work is to get this through to us. Job, we talked several weeks ago on, the, on a Wednesday night. We went through and talked about going through difficult times and, and we used the book of Job and the story of Job. And Job is a story of, of a man who was of a godly man who went through a horrible time of loss, family, all of his possessions, his health. And God used that time to reveal in him an attitude of self-righteousness that was not apparent to him or to anybody else that knew him. And the way God did that was, was to present at the end, God revealed who he was to Job. And when Job saw God for who he is and saw Job himself for who he is, he said, I've, I've heard of you before, but now I see you. Moses is a great example of this. Moses, I don't have time to go through the whole story, but Moses was born at a time when when Israel was in captivity to Egypt, and they'd been there about 400 and some years, almost 400 years at that point, and then, uh, and they're getting ready, God wants to get them out, get them into a promised land. So God has ordained a baby named Moses, and he's supernaturally preserved and, and, and he's found by Pharaoh's daughter and raised in Pharaoh's house to be his son. And then as, as Moses becomes of age, he goes out among his people, because I'm having to shorten this down because of time, goes out among his people because he has a sense he's the deliverer. Don't, don't pay attention to the movies. Moses knew he was the deliverer. Two reasons. Because it says his mother, his Hebrew mother, nursed him. And secondly, every Hebrew male was circumcised on the eighth day of their life. The Egyptians were not. I'm not going to spread this out in infinite detail, but every day Moses had an opportunity to observe there was a sign that he was a Hebrew and he was not an Egyptian. So he knew he was a Hebrew. 
He knew they wanted to be delivered, so he had to put two and two together. Oh, I, God's put me in this role. I am Pharaoh's son. I'm going to let my people go. But see, God has his own way of doing things, not the way we think that makes sense. Because the problem was, I'm going to read a little bit of this because you've got to see this. Go to... Um, Uh, go to Exodus 3. Because what happened now is, is Moses goes out to visit his people and, 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 and there's a, a fight breaks out and one of the Egyptian soldiers kills one of the Hebrews and Moses kills the Egyptian soldier and buries him in the sand. Comes back the next day because he's trying to see where the people are because he senses they need to be delivered comes back and he sees two Hebrews fighting and he goes to break them up and they turn on him and say, well, are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian? And now Moses flees because he's afraid of Pharaoh. See, when you're in God's timing, you will not be afraid by the opposition. He was afraid because he was not ready even though he thought he was ready. And so he flees out into the Midian desert and he spends the next 40 years... Listen to this, this is so good help some of you. He spends the next 40 years taking care of somebody else's sheep in the same wilderness that he's about to take care of God's sheep in. And he has no idea he's being prepared. Forty years he's out there, undoubtedly, I had a call of God on my life, I had a purpose for my life, and I blew it. It's gone. And I'm out here nowhere. I'm out taking care of these stinky, smelly sheep. They're not even mine. They're my father-in-law's. I'm nowhere. I'm sure God's given up on me. What was happening? God had to get Moses out of Moses. He had to bring Moses to the end of himself before he knew he could use Moses. So now in chapter 3... We're about 40 years later and Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the backside of the desert. He came to Horeb, the mountain of God. That'll be significant because he's going to lead the people there eventually. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. And as he looked, behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not being consumed. Next verse. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burning up. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, that's another whole message, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and he said, here I am. Now notice what he's going to say. And he said to him, do not draw near to this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Keep going. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. So here he's gotten stripped of what he can do, and now God is going to reveal himself in his holiness and who he is. Hid his face and was afraid to look upon God. See, now remember, he's been raised. In Egypt, Pharaoh was considered a god. So Moses was being raised up as the son of a God. So undoubtedly that part of that attitude was imbued in him. It's not in him any longer. Go ahead. 
Now therefore, I skipped some things he said. Now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I've seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now it's God's timing. God's saying it's time to go. So notice this. When God said it's time to go, he doesn't think he's ready. When God hadn't told him to go, he thought he was ready. Next verse. Oh, here, no, no, go ahead. Verse 11. Moses said, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? When we saw him earlier, he knew who he was. That's where his confidence was. Now God has stripped his confidence in himself away. And God, he will, can only have confidence in the God who's sending him. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh that I should bring back the children of Israel? See, when we get to the point of saying, well, who am I that you've called me to do this? King David said, who am I that you would take me as the youngest in my father's house to be king over the... Who am I? When that's our attitude, God can use you. When our attitude is, I can tell you, God, who I am, we disqualify ourselves for our sake because it will hurt us. He said, he said, I will certainly will be with you. So his answer is not who you are. His answer was, I'll be with you. And this shall be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve on this mountain. Verse 13. Moses said, Indeed, when I come out to the children of Israel, you say, and say to them, Go to your fathers. He has sent me to you. They're going to say to me, What's his name? Who sent you? And what shall I say to them? And this is why I wanted to see this part. And God said to Moses, Here's the answer. I am. Who I am. This is the most sacred name of God in the Old Testament so sacred the Hebrews would not pronounce it. And God is revealing to Moses his most holy name. It's interesting, in Psalm 103, David says about him, Israel knew God's acts, but Moses knew God's ways because he went through the process. Some of you, God's trying to take through a process of destroying you so he can dwell in you and you're avoiding the process or you're resisting the process. Peter, one of the best examples. We love to pick on Peter. He was so bold. He was so confident in his leadership. He was so confident in his commitment to Christ. So confident that when Peter, when Jesus sends him on the boat to go to the other side and he stays behind to pray and a great storm comes up and Jesus comes walking to him on the water and they get afraid and they cry out. They think it's a ghost. He says, don't be afraid, it's I. Literally what he says is, I am. (laughs) So they knew immediately who he was. I am. Be boldly courageous. And Peter with his boldness says, if it's you, bid me to come out on the water. And I don't have time, this is a whole another series. But Peter walked on the water. So when we criticize Peter, before you criticize him too much, come see me, we have a pond out back. Because <laughs> Peter walked on the water. There's an old saying, when they do a roll call in heaven of who's walked on water, it won't take long to answer it. But, let's go to Matthew 16. We're going to go through this quickly. This is again signs of his boldness. Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, the Son of Man am? I am. 
They said, well, some say you're John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, so they're all speculating. One of the prophets, and this is the question that's asked everybody, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Hold it there. That is such a powerful statement. There's three things he's saying there. You, Jesus of Nazareth, this man that's standing before me, you are the Messiah, the Christ. And the one who's the Messiah, the Christ, is also the Son of the living God. Keep going. Jesus Andrew said to him, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So you didn't get this on your own. This came to you from outside of you. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And he's going, to give them a, he's going to give to them authority now. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That's another whole teaching. And he commanded his disciples that they shall to, should tell no one that he's the Christ. Great. Peter, you did well. Keep going. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and raised on the third day. That's why he came. We know that. And Peter takes him aside and says, look at it, he rebukes him. See, Peter's on a roll here because Jesus just complimented him and says, Peter, you're hearing from the Spirit of God. You hear from God. So now he thinks he's heard again. Far be it from you, Lord, shall not let this happen to you. Look at Jesus' answer. And he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me, Why? Because you're not mindful of the things of God. You're not looking at things from God's perspective, but the things of men. Keep going. And Jesus said to his disciples, and if anyone, notice the transition here. If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. This is a response to what Peter just did. Peter's been complimented because he's hearing, he heard from God of who this man is, and now, full of that confidence in his discernment and ability to hear from God, he's now opened his mouth and put his foot in it. (laughs) And I want you to raise your hand if you've never done that. Cameras are on. (laughs) So God now has to, Jesus has to address this. This is what's going to take, Peter, if you're going to truly follow me. When he called his disciples, he just said, come follow me. But now at a stage along there following him, he's changing this terms. And he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it if... Verse 24. Did Did you skip a verse? Jesus said, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what we're talking about this morning. You've got to die to who you are, to self. Whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake shall save it. Okay. So, Peter, full of life, still doesn't get it. In Matthew 17, Jesus takes them up on a mountain, three of them, Peter, James, and John, up on a mountain, and on that mountain, Jesus is revealed in his glorified state, talking with Moses and Elijah. And Peter's so excited about this, that he has this privilege. He's seen the glorified Lord, that he wants to build churches around them, and hold on to the experience. Again, human thought. 
I got to hold on to this experience. Oh, that's a message in itself. And Jesus comes up. When, the moment he does that, they, the other two disappear. Jesus comes back into his human's form. And Jesus comes over and says, don't tell anybody about this until I've been raised from the dead. But now Matthew 26. Jesus is now, they're going through their last supper together. They're about to go over to the Mount Olives. Jesus sung a hymn with them. They go out to the Mount of Olives. Peter's still confident. Keep going. And Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble today because of me this night. Because it's written, so it's being fulfilled, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And after I've been raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. This is Jesus, the Son of God. Peter's just confessed. This is the Son of God saying these things. Okay? Peter answered and said, Even if all are made to stumble because of you, I, notice the I, I will never be made to stumble. His confidence in himself and his commitment. And Jesus bursts his bubble and says, Assuredly, I say to you this night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Look at Peter's reaction to this. Peter said, Even if I have to die with you, I will... Jesus is saying this to him. And he's so confident in himself, he rebuked Jesus earlier, and now he's arguing with Jesus. I know that's what you said, but I know myself better than you know me. I will, even if I've got to die with you, I will never deny you. And so said the other disciples. Well, we all know what happens. Jesus is arrested. We talked a little bit last week. Luke's account of this is that Peter is right outside the gate where Jesus is arrested, being questioned. And three times Peter denies to a servant girl, to some group of guys, no one that can do him any harm. He denies that he even swore the last time, I do not know who this man is. And with Luke's account, with the last one, the rooster crows, and Jesus looks over. And Peter breaks. He now sees himself as God sees him. He now sees himself. And he breaks. And he weeps bitterly. Peter has now died to himself. And he couldn't do that on his own. Christ had to bring him through that process. But then in John 21, we're not going to go through the whole story because we're going to run out of time. But John 21, starting in verse 15, Jesus comes now to restore. He's in the, by the Sea of Galilee. They've been out fishing. They come over. I told you the story again last week. Come over. Peter recognizes it must be the Lord. So he jumps over, swims ashore. He's so eager to see the Lord. And then Jesus doesn't say anything about who he is. And when they finish eating, he tells Peter, come here. They, they, Peter, he says to Peter, do you still say that you love me more than these guys do? And the word love that Jesus used is the agape, which is the word for God's love for us. It's a sacrificial love. Do you still say that you love me? You would die for me more than these guys would do it? And Peter says, no, Lord, I love you. And it's a different Greek word. It's phileo you. I have a brotherly affection for you. Then Jesus says, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. And then Jesus repeats this two more times. What's he doing? He's restoring each one of those three denials. He's restoring Peter. He said to us, Peter, earlier, he said, Satan's come to sift you, but I prayed for you. 
So whatever it is you've got to go through for the you, your ego, your will to die, understand this. It's the Spirit of God leading you through it. Jesus has interceded for you so that you'll be able to go through it as long as you allow God to do this work in you. When we resist Him and when we fight Him and when we argue with what we're going through, then that hinders God's hand to bring Him bring us through this. I've told this before. Jesus went through a process like this. We'll talk more about this next week. Luke chapter 4, verse 1. It says, Jesus, filled with the Spirit, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. And then down in verse 14, having gone through the test. And each of those tests of Jesus was a choice he had to make to choose what God said, God's view of something, against what his own personal needs or desires were. And because he chose God's way above his own self and his own will and his own purposes, he was, came back in the power of the Spirit. And that's what we're talking about. Where's the power? Why is it not flowing? We'll talk about this next week. Many today are filled with the Spirit but the power of the Spirit is not able to flow through us. Jesus went through a process by which the power of that Spirit was able to be released in Him. And when He comes back, now He begins His public, supernatural, dynamic ministry. So how do we do this? We're going to close this down in, in, in Romans chapter 7. Paul's struggling with the same thing. This whole book up until now is about God's grace. He says, I know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal, sold under sin. See if any of you can, rec- can identify with this. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, we're talking about a will here, <laughs> I don't practice. And what I hate, that's the very thing I go and do. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul. This is his real experience. For if then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it's good. I had an experience with that this morning. I got up and I will, you know what? I'm going to fast breakfast today. That's what I will to do. And when I went and got a bowl of cereal and a banana and ate it. <laughs> Don't look at me in that tone of voice. It's now no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. Have you come to that place yet? Don't speak too quickly. That's coming to the end of yourself. In me, nothing, nothing. In me, in me, apart from Christ, in me, nothing. The Old Testament puts it differently. Your best day is nothing but filthy rags in God's eyes. In me, Paul, the Apostle Paul, nothing good. That nothing needs to drive in us. Nothing good dwells in me. For to will is present with me, but how to perform it, what is good, I don't find. For the good that I will to do, I don't do, but the very evil I determine not to do, I go out and practice. For if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I doing it, but it's the sin that dwells in me. I find then a law that evil's present in me. This is, he's a Christian. He's seen Jesus. To will is present in me. I find that a law, the evil is present in me, the one who wills to do good. 
For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Here's the, here's the cry of his heart. Have you gotten to this place yet? Paul had been gotten to this place where he's, he'd seen himself. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I can't. I've run out. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't really appreciate what Christ has done for you until you understand who you are apart from Christ. And down in our inner nature is still this very subtle drive that somehow, someway, I'm going to contribute something to this process. And that is the part of us that has to die. So then with my mind I serve the law of God, with the flesh the law of sin. Okay, that's chapter 7. Chapter 8 is the answer. And here's a significant thing. You notice in everything we read, the Holy Spirit's never mentioned. It's all I. I find. I will. I do. It's all I. It's just kind of like back in Isaiah when Lucifer says, I will make myself like the Most High. I will lift myself up. I, I, I. And I think one verse, I, is said six times. The Spirit of God is never mentioned in verse chapter 7. Chapter 8, it appears 21 times. The law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. It goes on to say what the law could not do. You don't have time to go through it all. Basically what it says is what the law couldn't do because of what Paul just described, the weakness of my flesh, God did it for us in Christ. He condemned our sin in His flesh so that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. For those who set their mind on the things of the flesh, for the minds of things of the flesh uh, are, are carnal. Those who set their mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. And now go on to verse, the other verses I gave you. Verse eight, chapter 8, the other verses. The next ones. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but if you live according to the flesh, you will die. In other words, if your trust is in your own ability to change yourself, that's the result. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. You did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear. What we just read in chapter 7 was bondage. But you received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Philippians chapter 2, I'm going to have to summarize this. Paul starts, at, put verse 5 up there. Let this mind be in you which also was in Christ Jesus. What he's going on to say is he laid aside, he emptied himself of all of his own attributes, of all of who he was to, be, to become a man. He laid it aside and then he humbled himself. He humbled himself to, be, to, to submit to death. 
even the death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name that at the mention of his name every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth. God has exalted him because he humbled himself. He submitted himself. He died to himself just like he did in the garden. Not my will, but your will be done. But now look at the next verse. Keep going. Therefore, therefore always connects what he just said with what he's about to say. So now he's going to talk about us. Therefore, my beloved, as you've obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about being saved and going to heaven. He's taking what God has put in you and working that to the outside. Why? For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. Go back to verse 12. These are connected. We're to work out, there's a part we play and there's a part only God can play. So is God, is it working you to do what we've been talking about? To change your will. It's God, is it working you to destroy you? The selfish you. The self that we're talking about today. God is at work to destroy that so that He can give you, you can experience the newness of life that was born in you when you were born again. When you were born again, God's Spirit came to live inside of you. He put His own Spirit in you. He, he birthed His nature into you. Every one of you watching online sitting here, if you've given your life to Christ, Christ is in you. Romans 8 says that but He's bottled up in you. He's controlled by your other nature that's so self-centered that His life, His power can't flow out of... Remember Jesus said, out of your belly, not out of the building, out of you shall flow rivers of living water. If you're Christ, He lives in you. His Spirit lives in you. The same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, think of that power, lives in you now but He can't flow out of you. Why? Because there's still too much of us. God can't turn the faucet on because we'll spray that power on the next door neighbor who's got a nasty dog. Or I'll bring this power to work and I'll loosen my tongue. Do you understand the power of your words? And yet think of what you say all day long. This is what God wants to do in us, but it's the power of His Spirit. So the question we end with today, and I don't want you to answer this right now. We're over time already. Are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to let God do in you what He wants to do? Martin Luther talked about in order to be full of the power of God, God has to recreate you. But He not only has to recreate, He has to destroy what you were before. He has to destroy that self, that seed of self in you. And only the Spirit of God can do that. But He will never override your will. He knows just how to do it in each one of us, every one of us here today. Everyone you're watching online, he knows you so well, he knows exactly how to do it in each one of your hearts and lives. And I'm telling you by the Spirit, this is what he's after because he loves you.
He loves you so much to not leave you where you are. We use this expression, well, God loves me right where I am. Yes, and he loves you enough to not leave you where you are. Are you willing? We talked at the end. We'll end with this, I think. Yeah, we'll end with this. That river of life we read at the very beginning of the series. It's a river of life flowing out, but the, the a messenger pointed to Ezekiel and said, but see over here, they're marshes. And that's water where the flow of life is not coming out of the altar. It's water that refuses to change. It's a marsh. And no life is coming from that marsh. Why? Because that marsh represents people that are not willing to change. They're not willing to let God do the work in him down deep inside where only God can go. They're not willing to do that, so they begin to stagnate. And when water stagnates, it starts to smell. And it attracts all kinds of bugs and things that begin to spread disease. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. When we're not willing to let God work in us, then what happens is we stagnate inside and it becomes fertile ground in our heart for the enemy to begin to sow discontent and seeds of other things that become contagious contaminants to those that are around us. So I'm going to pray. We're going to leave it there. Next week we're going to pick up. <laughs> we're going to pick up with what's God's answer. How is God going to do this? What's he see? What's he want for us? Father, I come to you tonight as we close this service. And thank you for your grace. I thank you for everyone that's here that is, in spite of the difficulty of the message, they've listened. And I believe with all my heart they've listened because what you're offering they want. They desire. They're here because they desire that, Father. And so I know you see that desire in their heart. I pray that you not let anyone be discouraged because the discouragement is looking at myself and saying, I can't do that, and that's the beginning of help. That's right, we can't do this. We have to surrender and allow you to do that, and even you have to help us to surrender. But our confidence is in the power of the Holy Spirit. None of us in this room, none of us watching online, are so hard, so tough, so difficult, so strong, so stubborn, that the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead can't work in us and melt our hearts. So our prayer today, Father, as we prepare to leave this place, that the seeds that have been sown by your Spirit through your Word will begin to take root and the Spirit of God will begin to work in our hearts as He probably has already been working to prepare us for what you've put us here to do and what you've called us to be. For these things we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.